career sucks. Sex just isn't the same. What's my purpose? Where did this fat come from? My relationship is killing me. I'll never be happy. My debt is piling up. I'll never find love. Why can't I be like other gay guys? Hey guys, it's time to get a grip, stop whining, make a bold move, and do something amazing with your 40-plus gay life. Let's get to the show with your tell-it-like-it-is host, Rick Clemens, who does his best to never act like a dick or a diva unless you act like one first. So here it is, the holiday season. Lots of parties, lots of going out, feeling the stresses of the holidays, trying to get all the right gifts, making sure you don't forget somebody, and then maybe even on top of all that, you got work, work, work piling up around you. And for some of us, that may mean we turn to some, well, some behaviors and substances to kind of get through, whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever it may be. And then before you know it, you might be finding yourself up against a wall of addiction. So where do you turn? What do you do? Well, a lot of people default to the, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and that kind of crowd. And that really works great. But for others, maybe that isn't the path. Maybe it isn't where they should be going. And today's guest is going to share from a heart-centered space his own journey as a gay man whose journey towards emotional and sexual freedom and recovery and sobriety really gave him another viewpoint of how to do the journey. We're talking with Adam Fitzgerald, who is a new author of a book called Recovering from Recovery. And I, I just, I couldn't not have this guy on the podcast because... It just felt right during this season to talk about these things that come up and also offer up another pathway out of, quote, the darkness, so to speak. So, Adam, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you here today, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So let's kind of start with, you know, what was the addiction? When did it really set into you that you had this issue? And let's start from there and then we'll get into the journey and the book and everything else. But how long have you been in, in recovery, so to speak? Uh, sure. Yeah. I, my, my addiction was mostly alcohol okay. dabbled frequently, but not um, all the time with drugs. Um, but primarily I was a, a drinker and a heavy drinker. Mm -hmm. um, it started, you know, it's hard to say when it started because it was, I went to, you know, a big university and we just all drank all the time and it was funny yep. and, you know, we couldn't remember last night and who fell down and where did you wake up? Um, and then sort of in my 20s, I moved to Atlanta and then New York and still, we, you know, in your 20s, everyone's drinking and I, I work in theater. So it's a nightlife sort of thing. Yep. And then as I was approaching my 30s, fewer and fewer of my friends were drinking like I was. Mm -hmm. And so I started alternating who I would go out with because nobody wanted to go out as much. Right. And then sort of in my late 20s, early 30s, there were, you know, that's when it started turning to, well, if I couldn't find people to go out with, I was just at home um, mm. drinking by myself. Um, and it was seven nights a week. And it was um, waking up hungover pretty much five to seven days a week that I had drunk enough to be to be fairly hungover and a couple days a week to be, you know, vomiting in the shower, getting ready for work and and uh, a lot of like eating stinky food so people couldn't smell the alcohol on my breath, um, eating which liquor stores I went to so that it wouldn't seem like I was buying as much. And just, yeah, if if I couldn't find someone to drink with, it didn't 
stop me from getting completely hammered by myself. Um, mm-hmm. And so I found it was, I needed some, uh, I needed a change and I needed to stop. Um, I was around, th- I was 33 when I, I stopped drinking mm-hmm. um, and went into AA. Wow. And, and so I know I've kind of, I would say I would consider at times gotten to that brink where I'm like, okay, what's going on mm. with me? Um, I've always been able to march it back pretty easily. But what was that thing that you knew within yourself that, okay, absolutely positively, something's got to change. I mean, you talked about, you know, eating food and stuff to like cover it up. But like, was it just to the point where you're like, I just can't function? Was that kind of where you were in this journey? No, I was lucky. I didn't, it didn't get that far. I, I was okay. not drinking during the day. I was not drinking when I woke up. It was, okay. for me, it was every single night. It was, I would finish mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. I had to do for the day. And the second I was done, I would start drinking. And I would drink hard and heavily until I passed out or went to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually, what happened was I had an ex who got sober while we were together mm, mm-hmm. and, and so when he got sober and he and i drank a lot together um when he got sober it was sort of like you know he was one of those people who he was constantly falling down he was constantly losing stuff he was constantly so it, it seemed like he was worse than me um truth is he was just clumsier than me but um he would just when he got sober primary drinking partner sort of went away and then all of a sudden it 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 felt like he stepped out from between me and the mirror because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i didn't have this person to point to i didn't have this person that we were always drunk together and so and actually had this person that was completely sober and so i went into aa sort of briefly with the idea that i wanted to get it under control went back out got right back to the same place went in again for another three weeks came back out, started drinking again. He and I broke up. Um, and I just woke up one morning in some guy's bed and it was one too many times, you know, um, like I didn't not, not having sex with someone or not having sex with a stranger, but the fact that I wasn't sure who he was, um, I had no idea where I was. I knew I was somewhere in Queens, but no idea. And, and this is a moment I will always remember having, because this was pre-prep, leaning over the bed instinctively to like check the floor to see if we'd used condoms. Mm. And, and it was just that moment of, I don't know why this morning, because there were condoms on the floor, we had been safe, um, mm-hmm. but it was just one too many times of waking up filled with shame and filled with regret and hungover and and not knowing if I had uh, made choices that put myself at risk you know having to lean over again for probably the you know right. 40th or 50th time to check the floor for condoms and being relieved oh. that they were there was just mm-hmm. I just couldn't anymore I was exhausted and yeah. that day I I went in to an AA meeting and I I stayed in AA for I stayed sober for 12 years. I stayed in AA mm. for probably seven or eight. Mm. Um I can so yeah, I can I was... so relate to that story in so many ways. <laughs> uh, I, I hit I was living in Laguna Beach and this was right after I came out. I mean, I'd only been out maybe 
maybe a year at that time. And I had moved to Laguna. My ex-wife was living in Orange County, California area. I had my kids with me pretty much every other week and every few days at that time, but then it moved every other week. And I had gone out to one of the bars and I had had a lot to drink, which I'm a big guy. So I can, Mm. I can take a lot when it comes to (laughs) drinking and the little, just, I'm just going to say the little enclave that I lived in was basically all gay guys there was three okay. or four different apartments and and there were a couple of us that just had little studios but it was kind of like its own little gay you know 90210 so to speak right <laughs> and um came back from the bar and my neighbor had been at the bar too and he'd always flirted with me and stuff like that and i just wasn't like and you know as sometimes we're prone to do <laughs> we just kind of say okay well whatever let's let's just let's just do the nasty right And I woke up that next morning and I rolled over and I was in his bed, not in my, I mean, literally our, our apartments were like right, right next to each other, kind of mine overlooked his, so to speak. And I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? And the first thought was, oh my gosh, do I actually, did I do this when I had the kids, you know, which I know I would never do that. I'm, I'm, I was pretty much that observant of my drinking patterns at that point. And that was definitely one of the days I considered like, do I have a problem? Mm. Should I do something? And then I thought, well, how frequently is this happening? And kind of similar to you, I'm like, I'm not drinking except maybe a couple of times in the evenings. And that was my own soul searching, Adam, to be really honest. Like, I'm a father. I really need to think about, you know, what I'm doing here. But I kind of did the same thing, like, okay, were we safe and all this sort of stuff? And Mm. it woke me up a lot. So your experience took you to AA. You were there for years. But then there's a twist to the whole story, which kind of brings you to the book. So what was the twist out of AA that you are now sharing with the world? It was sex. It was discovering my sexuality sober. Um, You know, it was sort of um, figuring out there were so many things I did when I was drunk that I would only do when I was drunk. And when I got sober, after a couple of years, these desires were still there. All these wants were still there, but I didn't have, you know, what, what do they say, the liquid lubricant um, to sort of take away the shame and take away the the sort of voices that were blocking me from, from being a sexual being because I had up to that point, I had equated my sex life with alcohol. Mm, And, mm -hmm. and the problem is that meant there was a lot of shame tied to my sex life because when I woke up hungover and ashamed of how much I had drank and ashamed that I didn't remember everything and ashamed that, you know, what I had done or it was all tied in to alcohol. And so what happened was I stopped drinking and I was sober and I started going out again to, you know, to saunas, to sex parties, to cruising bars, um, and making these choices sober. And it was amazing. I mean, it was, Mm. you don't have, it's funny because when you don't have the excuse of, Oh, I was so drunk last night, you have this sort of beautiful thing that I, I didn't expect, which is I chose that. Mm. And it actually turned from shame to sort of very powerful. Yep. Um, and so when I was I was doing that, I was getting a lot of advice in AA that I shouldn't be doing that. 
that there were places we shouldn't be going to, that there was putting myself at risk unnecessarily. Um, and then certainly not everyone. I got sober in New York around a lot of gay men, but there was a decent amount of, of sort of slut shaming in that like that's not sober behavior um, was a phrase I heard quite often. Um, and it made me start to question a lot of what I was hearing in AA. Um, because if I wasn't supposed to be doing these things and these things were tied to my alcoholism and these things were old behavior, so another phrase here all the time. And I was actually finding so much joy in exploring my sexuality and exploring fetish and exploring all these things sober and completely conscious. It sort of made me start to question um, and the big question being, do I have this incurable disease or which never really sat right with me? Or is there maybe something else at play here? Right. And I think that's the thing is when we start to see what else is at play here, then we have to go explore it. So yes. similarly to you, when I was married, I drank probably more than I ever have in my life. Again, not to oblivion, but like I drank a lot. Mm. I drank because I was serial cheating on my wife with men. Mm. And so I was living the double life. And so to be fun, Ricky, so to speak, even though I hate that that is actually my name, Ricky, um, <laughs> but to be fun, happy, go lucky, Rick, so to speak, I would drink after the shame of going and having sex with these guys. And, and it's so a there, there cycle, was, isn't it? it's a very vicious cycle because it is one of those things that I feel I needed to wake up from number one. And number two, if I didn't, it could have had some huge, huge ramifications in my world. Mm -hmm. And so I started to realize the, the beauty, I'm going to say beauty of seeing the connection and also then like learning how to separate the two and going, okay, if I'm a guy with a, a really high sex drive, then I need to have other conversations. In that case, I need to have a conversation with my wife. Like, guess what? I am gay and this isn't mm. going to work any longer. Right. Here's the interesting thing that happened in my world around that. As soon as I opened up to her about that, my drinking diminished tremendously yeah until we started going through the heaviness of the divorce sure and then it picked back up because i'm like okay i gotta manage i need to realize and I, I was to the point where i literally wasn't even sleeping i'm like okay i would drink wine not to oblivion again i would drink wine to the point of just help me sleep some way shape or form which is such a bullshit mm. thing to do because no, but drinking does not help you sleep so but no, it's an it interesting thing when you can see this stuff. It does yeah. quiet your brain. It does quiet your brain. So as you saw this interconnectivity of, okay, this is happening on the, the alcohol and the sexual thing, what became the freeing piece? Because there's a piece of this that really became the freedom that you started to experience. You know what? I went into therapy and um, started to explore with my therapist why why I drank. And he sort of said a few things, one of which was um, this idea that I sort of replaced this idea of alcoholism with, I took my own self-loathing and sort of shifted it over to alcoholism because I believed 
from a very young age that there was something wrong with me, that I was inherently broken, you know, I was inherently damaged, and that I had a name for it in my 30s. I could call it alcoholism. And what it actually, ironically, this thing that helped me so much, because I, I will say, and I, I say in the book, and I talk about AA helped me immensely. At that point in my life, I was a mess. And going to AA sort of helped me to stop and pause and, and re-examine mm -hmm. my life completely. But when I went into I sort of made this discovery that it wasn't some disease that I was born with. There was violence in my childhood. I also grew up in the 80s, 70s and 80s in rural America, um, where being a gay man was, there was no gray area. It was wrong. It was disgusting. It was against God. And you shouldn't mm -hmm. do that. And the, then the AIDS crisis happened. Mm. So as I came into my sexuality, everything I knew about gay sex was I had already learned how terrible and wrong it was, and now it was going to kill you. Mm. And a lot of American rhetoric was saying, and you deserve it. Yep. So between this sort of um, chaos of my uh, young childhood and growing up gay and the AIDS crisis, I just couldn't handle the world without getting drunk at the end of the day, because my mind was just constantly yep. going. Yep. And so when working with my therapist, I sort of uncovered reasons why I was drinking, I was able to start to heal mm. and able to really look at it and go, yeah, you know, and the sex and my sexuality and my, my <clears throat> like of, of fetish and sort of unorthodox sex and the shame that that had all produced, all of this swirling in together made me have this aha moment of, I don't think I have a disease. I think I drank to deal with these traumas and this pain. And if I can don't, address this trauma and pain, maybe I can go another way. But don't you think that's what happens is we're like, all we're wanting to do is address the trauma and the pain. That's it's what it really comes to. It's why we eat so much. It's why we exactly. people get, I mean, it's why people work so much. Right. You know, like right. people are addicts to their jobs and it's all people are just, addicts you know, to so many things. So, so many, many things. things. I mean, it could be the littlest thing. It could be addicts to, you know, video games. It could be addicts to TV. It could be addicts to avoiding, you know, I actually have a client that I've worked with for quite some time on he's he's actually addicted to avoiding such social situations. But yet he wants to be socially out there, but he's addicted to the belief, let's say it that way. He's addicted to the belief that he doesn't know how to be social. But yet I've seen oh. him do it. I've seen him do it. Narratives, those narratives that we create when we're young and we're damaged and we're scared. Mm -hmm. And then what we repeat as adults is that's just how I am. Well, and this is a prime time of year that those narratives mm -hmm. are going to flare up and flare up in a big way. Here we are, as I said in the intro, in the midst of the holiday season, we are over overstretched for time, most of us, if we mm -hmm. allow that to happen. <laughs> That's the key. If we allow it to happen, we, think right. we have to be at this party or do this. And mm -hmm. da -da -da -da, you know, and this is where I say advocate for yourself and make yourself a priority. 
But it's really hard when the narrative is this is how you're supposed to show up in the world, especially in the LGBTQ space. We have been hammered to death like you can't be that. This isn't who you should be. This is how you're supposed to show up in the world. So that pebble or boulder in our memory and narratives always shows up, especially when it comes to the holidays, because it's like this is what we do to make everybody else happy and appease everybody else. And then Mm -hmm. before you know it. You're at this party, that party, this party, that party. And you're just like, I'm so over this. So what do we do? We either eat, overeat during the holidays, mm-hmm. over drink, find some escapes through drugs. I have coached several people over all my years of coaching in this time of year where their escape was. I'm just, I, one, one client in particular said, I have, would never have seen myself going to a sex club or a bathhouse. And here I am, I'm there every night because I'm so stressed out over the holidays. Mm. Now, the beautiful thing was that he was able to admit that. That's where it all starts. You have to admit this is what I'm doing, right? But in this conversation today, what I'm hoping we're helping anyone who's listening see is the beauty of embracing this is what is happening, number one. Mm -hmm. You have to embrace it and make it your truth. And then embrace that you want to see a change. Now, how you go to make the change happen, there's a million different pathways in my book to get there. Absolutely. The thing is, find the pathway that works best for you and doesn't make that shame That right there is why I wrote that book. (laughs) Find the pathway that works for you. You know, and and what sort of, you're, you're absolutely right. Like accepting this is why this is the problem I'm having finding that like, I want to be and do differently and then finding a pathway that doesn't reinforce the shame that was causing the problem in the first place. It's so important. Mm -hmm. And that's different for everyone. And I think that's the most important thing. Like somebody else's pathway is not necessarily yours. And so you can ask people what they did. You can ask people how they went, but you have to, you have to go towards a thing that heals you and not well, towards and, a thing that shames you. And don't you think, Adam, okay, so as a coach, I I, I love I love playing the have-tos. You don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. You don't have, you don't to, have do to do anything. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to go towards what heals you, make sure you understand why you're going towards that. What is the outcome you're really seeking that's different yeah. than what you are now? And so many times, whether it's weight loss or getting past alcohol addiction or sex addiction or getting off of the TV, you know, every night of the week, whatever it is, be very clear in the outcome you're trying to achieve that is different from where you sit today. And that's something that getting some professional help, if you're struggling with that, it's like, why would you come out of the closet if you don't know why you're coming out of the closet? There's no reason to do it. You know, it isn't just because <laughs> it isn't just because you want some dick and ass. I mean, let's just be mm. real. That that could be pieces of it. But what is it that you're wanting to experience? And I'll never forget the first time in my coaching training, they asked the question, why to all of us that were in the train you know, first weekend, why do you want to be a coach and what do you want to do? I said, I want to I want to be a coach that helps other men trapped in the closet to realize the freedom that exists beyond just a hookup on the other side Mm. of the closet door. And that was the biggest clarity I ever had because I realized I was very intentional, very clear why I wanted to do this. If you can get intentionality and clarity on why you want to give up drinking, 
give up smoking. That was another one for me. I smoked for years. And literally right when I started my coaching training, I was like, I'm going to do something about this. But you know what? What's the difference? Was I answered why I was going to do something about mm -hmm. this. I was tired of feeling like a cast out. I just, <laughs> I just didn't like that yeah. feeling of, you know, yeah. and I'm talking, this is back in, you know, 2000, late night, you know, late nineties into the early two thousands. I'm like, okay, let's do something about this. Right. I just didn't like feeling like that outcast of, Oh, you're a smoker. Right. Yeah. But it wasn't only that I knew I wasn't feeling good. I'm a mm. kind of a money guy. I'm like, this is freaking ridiculous that I'm spending this yeah. kind of money, you know, on this when there's other things I would love to be spending money on. So all the clarity and like the intentionality started to show up. I think what you're beautifully demonstrating here in this conversation, then also in your book is make sure you know why you're wanting to do it and realizing there's more than one pathway to get in there. Yes. And make sure that that why is your own voice. Absolutely. And I think that is so important because the why we do things so often mm -hmm. is external. It is based in what society thinks we should do, what we have to do, these voices that we have inside our head that are not actually our voices. They're voices of shame, they're voices of for passive, voices of pain, they're voices mm -hmm. of fear. And when you express that intentionality, making sure that what you say you want is coming from yourself mm -hmm. and not from somewhere else. And then you but, can find a pathway towards healing. But the thing that's, all of this is couched in what you just said, shame, fear, and guilt. Shame. Every yeah. bit of it. Yes. Every bit of it. And, and as soon as we realize, okay, there is no shame in being gay. There is no shame in being an alcoholic. There is no shame in being a sex addict. There's a reality of this is who I am. And here's where I'd rather be. And it's such a beautiful thing right. when you can pull that mask back or pull that curtain back <clears> on that <throat> concept <throat> of if you remove the shame and accept this is who I am. Right. Now, who do I want to be? You lift so much. I mean, all of us who come through the coming out journey, as soon as we quit feeling shame, which still pops up every so often. Shame pops up around being gay in mm. weird, unusual ways. I mean, it, <laughs> weird it, ways, very weird ways. Yeah. yeah. I'm just like, whoa, where did that come from? You know? <laughs> um, but as soon as you can release the shame, I believe you can start to move forward. Doesn't yeah. mean there isn't fears. Cause yes, there's going to be a fear when I, when I quit hooking up so much as I was, when I was, you know, married and everything there was this fear of okay well then i'm just going to end up being this heterosexual guy who will have to hide this secret forever but as soon as i took the shame away from being gay and realized no i'm going to go be who i am then i got to choose how i wanted to be out there in the world as a gay man of course yes. and and i think the moment and this for me is always a danger zone and i talk about this a little bit in the book like when you say either or you're mm -hmm. looking at your options and you only see two. Yes. Either I keep hooking up on my wife and doing these things I'm ashamed of, or I have to live a miserable heterosexual life. Yep. As soon as you are saying, I, these are my two choices, you're not in a good headspace. There no. are almost never only two choices. Yep. There are infinite choices and there's a spectrum when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to hooking up. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a whole spectrum of, okay, I'm going to get drunk and, and hook up with people I don't know and don't even really want to have sex with. You can change that without saying I'm never going to hook up again. 
I can change how I hook up. I can change why I hook up. But as soon as we start talking in those extremes, that to me is a warning sign that I'm not, I'm not making a decision in a healthy place. And the thing is, is when you start to realize, but also when you start to give yourself the self-love of mm. this is what unhealthy looks like, which to me is a self-love. It's a self-compassion yes. thing. Uh, yes. That's where power steps in too. Like this is not empowering me. This is disempowering me. Exactly. It, you know, there was, there was a time when I was, I was hooking up on a very, very regular basis mm. and I could see myself kind of marching towards that addiction space. And then a friend of mine who was a sex addict, like couldn't, he couldn't make it through the day, like without at least oh, wow. one or two, okay. one or two hookups a day. And it's just, I don't know. It's just empowering to catch yourself in that space. Yes. And say, and to understand I that can it's do better. Different. Yeah. And it's different for everyone because it, you know, there are other people, myself included, who had so much shame around sex that actually freeing myself sexually and having more sex was a healing space. Mm -hmm. to go and and really like say like oh wow i'm hiding from sex i'm hiding from my sexuality i'm hiding from what i like because i'm ashamed of it and so again that, that you know you said it so beautifully before like figuring out with intentionality who is it i want to be how do i want to be in the world right. what is healthy look like for me and understanding but that, that question of you, who do i want to be is so powerful yes it's such yes. a powerful thing. Like, I mean, so not exactly the same thing, but a um, few months, a couple of months ago, my husband and I went on a very extended vacation with the LGBTQ travel company. And we were on a small cruise ship, just three, 260 some passengers. So it wasn't a monster ship and long trip, 17 days. And everything was included all your food, all your cocktails, mm. all the stuff, right? And each day, even just eating the food, I, I would ask myself, who do I want to be right now? Because I've been on a very, very intentional weight loss journey. Mm. And I would literally stand and I have a weakness for ice cream and they had wonderful ice cream on the ship. <laughs> and I would actually stand there and go, OK, well, does this help you be who you want to be? And it would definitely help me like monitor instead of let's go for three bowls of ice cream. I'd go, let's have my one mm. and be good with it, you know. And I, I feel, I guess, blessed, and I don't want to sound egotistical around this, but I feel blessed that I've installed that kind of critical thinking into my being where I can mm. see stuff like that. Not every day, guys, I'm telling you, there's other stuff I'm like still struggling with, like to have that critical thinking be a key piece of my world. But I think the beauty is, is when you allow the critical thinking to show up, you also eliminate the shame, you eliminate the guilt, and you're asking yourself to look deeper at yourself, at your truest self of what you want to be. Yeah. Is it going to be easy the first couple compassion. of times? No. Oh, gosh, yeah. yes. Compassion is so important. Because and sometimes we don't so, give ourselves that. No, and that's that's one of the, the uh, you know, yes, looking at yourself with critical thinking, looking at, like, is this helping me be who I want to be? But the trap when a lot of people fall into, and I think particularly gay men of our age who, you know, have 
<clears throat> grown up with so much shame and so much confusion and hiding, you have to also forgive yourself for beat yourself up for your past and still move forward in a loving way at the same time, you know, and accepting you, you know, the things that you did and who you were and how you behaved and going, I'm okay, but I would like to be better. I would like to do better than that. And, and, and the thing is, it's careful. okay. Not, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. Yes. I we're mean, all that's not okay. We're, we're all, all not okay. <laughs> yeah. I, we're all messy. I mean, life is messy. And, and I remember yeah. years ago through some of my training and then, and I've done a lot of different personal development work and, you know, enhancing my coaching and all this sort of stuff. And I still remember one of my, I'm going to call him a mentor, um, Jonathan Fields. He goes, life is messy and we're always in the thrash. And I thought, wow, that's that's actually very true. And he didn't mean it like life just sucks. He's like, life is just messy and we're always thrashing through to the next thing. Doesn't mean we're always in chaos. But I thought even in the best of times, it's kind of a mess. You know, you're like, oh, this is so good. But wow, I, you know, and a lot of people will, it's so good. And then the next thought is, when's it going to go away? Well, there's the messiness. There's the thrash. You, you just took it away from yourself. Right. So. So what is one of the things you feel like at this stage, besides the book being out, that you're most proud of about yourself and your discovery through this journey, man? You know, owning my sexuality was huge. It really mm. was. And and the book is a sort of um, a product of that, to finally put out in the world the things that I like sexually, the things that I was so ashamed of sexually. Um so that that's a big one. But the other one is just getting to a point where we're being helpful to others and being compassionate to others and being compassionate for myself mm. in a being in the world in a gentler way. It's mm. probably the best way I could put it because it, you know, as a New Yorker and, and I was working in theater and, and everything was at a, a nine all the time. Yep. And I was not kind to myself. I was kind to other people, but also moving too fast, not there for people in the way I, I, I wanted to be. And, and so sort of a lot of this journey has been about, you know, that question, who do I want to be in the world? I want to be present with the people I'm with. Yes. And that, especially in New York and in, in any big city, you know, you're, you're so on the go all the time. And then when you're slamming, 15 drinks every night you know right. being present in your in your day-to-day -day life becomes very difficult and 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 being being present for people in a where they meeting them where they are and instead of going where i think you should be coming to people and asking people to come to me where i am and again i think all of it it's so much of it comes back to compassion and eliminating that judgment eliminating that shame and accepting you know we started with this accepting that everyone's path is different everyone's journey is different and loving people for their journey when it doesn't match my own and insisting if you're going to be in my life that you love me for my journey even if it looks nothing like yours and i think another thing you just brought up is that slowing down we can't see our stuff when we're go, 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 go. Yeah. 
And because mm-hmm. we're go, 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 going so much, then it's almost like, oh, it doesn't really exist. Oh, it doesn't really, it does exist. But then we wonder why we get wrapped up in these little chaotic spaces. And then boom, before you know it, we're struggling with an addiction or we're not, we don't have any circles of friends or, you know, anything can be happening at that stage. Mm-hmm. And I love the slowing down piece because it's as simple as a breath. And when I, mm-hmm. when I'm working with people and they're, they're, they're like going and then this, and then I'm like, okay, cool. Can we do one thing? Can you just take a breath real quick here? Can you breathe? You know what I'd love to say is where are my feet? Mm. It's actually something I learned in AA because when you're, you're going all over the place and you're thinking about this is going to turn into this and this is going to spiral into this. And, and I, I stop myself and go, okay, where are my feet? Yes. And it makes me be like, makes me breathe and understand where I am today and that probably I'm okay. Mm. And that I can what? move forward in a way that's intentional. One but of the things I do is you stop. Yeah. Unless you stop. One of the things I've done with clients too is, okay, cool. I hear that. And what else? And then what else? And then what else? I'm like, mm. great. So today at the end of the day, if you had to write down all these thoughts you had, how exhausted would you feel? And that really stops them in their track. And then I say, could you even capture all the thoughts you're having? Because you can't. We have like some ridiculous number, like 60, 70,000 thoughts a day as a human being. Right. I'm like, okay, but if you could capture the ones that are wearing you out, then how much more worn out would you feel? I love taking the whole thought thing because mm. it starts to go, oh, okay. So if you just stopped and paused, when these thoughts start to snowball, when the monkey mind just goes, go, 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 mm. and you stopped and paused and says, how is this supporting me? How is this helping me? Right there is a pattern interrupt. Just that thought. And I, I love yeah. yours too. Where are my feet? Where are and my I feet? would encourage anybody to find their thing, you know, whatever the term is. And I've worked with many people finding their little catchphrase that gets them. One guy cracked me up. He goes, I think the next time this happens, it's like, would he give me a blowjob if he knew what I was thinking? I'm like, <laughs> okay, I guess if that... What's going to do it? He goes, well, no, it's like, he goes, I love Whatever sex. Whatever makes so you goes, pause. Yeah. So he's like, you know, if I start doing this crazy stuff, like, would somebody give me a blowjob if they knew all these crazy thoughts going in my head? And it just cracked me up. It cracked me up. But That's again, I, well, I loved it because it was like, oh, it centered it for him. You know, another one of my clients who was in the in theater and dance and everything, he said, what if this thought caused me to miss my cue? What if it caused me to miss my cue? I'm like, well, are those thoughts causing you to miss your cue? And he said, yes. I'm missing the cues of what life could be like. I'm yeah. missing the cues of what's possible. That was one of those. That was one of those proud Papa Coach moments. I'm like, oh, I think I broke through with somebody. But yeah, um, yeah. So I the love that I this love is. Go ahead. I just I love um, you know when people say people say horrible, cruel things to themselves. When people talk about themselves, they talk about themselves horribly. And one of the things I love to do with people is say, I want you to say that sentence again, but say it to me. Mm -hmm. And so when someone says, you know, I'm just a useless piece of shit and I'm not capable of following through on anything. And I say, say that to me. Say, Adam, you are a useless piece of shit, incapable of following through. And they're, you know, I would never say that to you. Right. Don't talk to but they'll say that but way. but then they'll say it to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. If you would be horrified saying something to someone else, 
you are being cruel to yourself and unnecessary. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And the thing is, is that cruelty is what creates the first little pebble in the shoe that carries forward. And the more you do it, it mm-hmm. becomes bigger and bigger. And then you wonder why at 50, 60, 70 years old, there's that phrase still rolling around in your head. Mm-hmm. Or you so. wonder why at 33, you're polishing off a magnum of wine in an apartment by yourself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's so fascinating. So, well, I am so glad we got to have this at this time of the year, because I think a lot of people can take something from this and realize there are pathways, there are things, there's signs to see within yourself. We're not calling everybody addicts. We're not bringing that up. We're saying, be aware, self-awareness, be self-love, aware. self-compassion, and see where you can go. So, so again, the name of the book is Recovery from Recovery, right? Yes, yes. And And if somebody wanted to get a copy of it, where's the best place for them to go to get it? Uh, they can get it on Amazon or it's available on Barnes and Noble, um, or they can go to my website, directorfits.com. Awesome. Um, and, or no, that's not the, that's my old website. <laughs> it's <laughs> fitzmedia.info, F-I-T-Z media.info. And you click on book and there are links to awesome. order there. Well, that's so cool, man. And I hope somebody feels, I mean, maybe this isn't the best Christmas gift, but I think it could be, I think it could be, you know, some people go, Oh, I wouldn't give that to somebody. Well, maybe you need to give it to yourself as a Christmas present. Maybe, but, yes. um, and, anyway. and I love what you said. I think the best advice anybody can give during the holiday season is don't forget to breathe. Right. And not just, just a Christmas breathe. gift. I don't want to be that guy. Like, Oh, he's only Christmas. No Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever, whatever right. the holiday season is that you're celebrating, you need something to give, do it. But, um, I just yes. so appreciate you, Adam. I'm so glad we got connected. And so me too. So hope everybody has a wonderful holiday season and that in some way, shape or form, this touches somebody who might be struggling with that, whatever. It doesn't have to be a huge addiction. It could just be something little that you're like, it's start, it's starting to form and it may mm. turn into an addiction. Anyway, yeah. well, thank you so much, my friend. I so appreciate you and happy holidays, everybody. Go out there and, and be you and really let your guilt, shame and all that stuff go away and enjoy just being in the holidays your way. That's a wrap for 40 plus gay men, gay talk where size doesn't matter. We drop our bullshit, get over our screwed up fears, make bold moves and live life without apologies. Don't forget to join us on Facebook at 40 plus gay men, gay talk where the conversations continue.